Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning, Wildwood. Hey, it's great to see you all. Uh, Wonderful that we have a chance to gather on this Sunday morning and to, to worship Jesus together. Um, this is an early morning compared to a late night. I know for many of you, it's not often that I have a pretty good idea when a lot of you went to bed, but this is one of those days that I have a pretty good idea. And you might have gone to bed sad, but we get to wake up happy because Jesus is still on the throne. And we are going to look into his word today and see a little bit more about what he has for us. If you were with us last week, you know Pastor Bruce was walking us through the first part of Romans chapter 13 in a short little two-part series we've called Nations Under God. And in this series, we're finding out how we reconcile being a citizen of a country and a follower of Christ. What does that look like? We began to unpack that last week. And if you were here last week, you know that Bruce centered a lot of the message right around Romans 13 verse 1 which tells us this. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God has established government. Well, how do we live as a follower of Christ underneath a human government? We're going to talk more about that today. And and rather than being anchored just to one passage, we're going to bounce through a number of passages in the Old and the New Testament to help us to understand how we live as a follower of Christ in, in society. So I'm excited for the opportunity that we have to do that today. But before we, we do that, I, I do want to first just ask you a question related to a day. And that is, what were you doing on the morning of September the 3rd? Now, some of you are, are trying to think back in your mind, what's he talking about, September the 3rd? Well, let me give you a, a number that maybe will help you make sense of September the 3rd a little more, 5.8. What were you doing when the ground began to shake on the morning of September the 3rd? How did you survive the great Oklahoma earthquake of 2016. The epicenter up near Pawnee, it, it shook lots of places. Some of you uh, were... were inside and you felt it. Some of you were asleep and you missed it. Others were outside driving and you might have missed it. But how many of you felt the earthquake on September the 3rd? Many, many of you. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those who felt it. We were all up at our house at that time and uh, uh, Kimberly and Josh and I and we were there and when the house began to shake, we all responded in a different way. How did you respond when your house began to shake? My son Josh, nine years old, dives into my lap. My wife, Kimberly, uh, must have just watched a a tutorial about California uh, because she ran under a doorframe and and took refuge there. Um, And I did what every Oklahoman does when a tragedy strikes, weather or or earth-wise. I run on the front porch to see if I can get a good look. Uh, No, I didn't do that. I I stayed right there. I, I grabbed my son, and we waited for the house to quit shaking. But here's the thing. We have to have an idea about what we do when the ground begins to shake, don't we? I mean, this is new for us as Oklahomans. We've got to figure this out. Some of you, some of you, I know this, some of you called State Farm on Tuesday. Monday was a holiday. You called it on Tuesday to find out how long you had to wait before you could add earthquake insurance. Others of you thought, what will I do when the big one comes? 
we have to think about how we respond when the ground begins to shake. Now, what's interesting about that is when we think about that from the perspective of an earthquake, that's relatively new for us, but we think about it in terms of just life. We're used to, as humans living in this world, we're used to our earth shaking. The ground beneath us quakes a lot, and we have all developed ways of responding. Sometimes the epicenter of that quake impacts only a family or two. It might be a diagnosis of cancer. It might be a divorce that is unspooling. It might be a challenge financially in your home, but your ground begins to shake. When your ground begins to shake in in your home, on some of these personal issues, you might dive into the arms of a loved one and want to find some comfort and some protection. But there are other times the ground shakes around us and the epicenter is something that we share a little more. It might be in world events. There might be a bomb that goes off in a dumpster in New York City like happened last night. Or it might be 9-11-2001 when planes fly into buildings and our world changes forever. It, the ground begins to shake. Now when things happen in a family, we dive into the arms of a loved one, but when things happen on a big epic scale like 9-11 or other events, many times we want to seek shelter underneath the frame of government. Patriotism runs high in times like that because we seek some protection from government when these big problems face our world. Well, is that appropriate? Is it appropriate for us as followers of Christ to seek some shelter from our government? I I think it is. We're going to see that today as we look at some of these verses we're going to look at today. But is it our ultimate shelter? I think the answer to that is no. And we'll see that also as we look at some passages today. Because, friends, we need to know how to respond when the earth around us begins to shake. We'll all face it. How do we respond? We're going to see that this morning. Now, we're going to organize the message today a little differently. If you are at Wildwood frequently, you know that we typically will have a single passage that we spend the majority of our time in. Uh, But today, as we bounce off of Bruce's message from last Sunday from Romans 13, 1 through 7, we're going to to cover a, a wide variety of verses from the Old and the New Testament to help us to understand the concepts that he explained a little more. And so as we do that, we're going to be flipping through our Bibles. And so if you brought a Bible, get it out. And go ahead and stretch your fingers out because we're going to be turning in it quite a bit. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the seat in front of you. You can get that open. Um, Some of the scripture we'll have on the screen, but others we won't. But I would encourage you to to turn in the Bible as we go because uh, there's some great truth for us here today. We're going to see four things this morning about living as a Christian inside of society. The first thing we're going to see is this, the earth quakes. The earth quakes. Now, we as believers and followers of Christ know where this started and where it comes from. We live in a world that is not paradise. We live in a world that has real problems. As followers of Christ, we know that the reason for that is because of sin being in the world. There was a time where God created a place, a paradise, we know it as the Garden of Eden, where where sin wasn't there until the serpent comes in and tempts Adam and Eve and they eat of the fruit that God said don't eat from and sin entered the world. And from the time Adam and Eve sinned, we now live in a world that is constantly quaking from its effects. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, uh, describe what happened uh, as an impact of sin entering the world when the Lord speaks to Adam and says this. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. We live in a world with thorns and thistles. We live in a world that is quaking. We feel the effects of that all the time, don't we? The effects of a world that is, that is quaking about the consequences of sin. We, we feel them personally. We feel them in our society Book of Romans chapter 8 verse 20 and 22 describe this reality a little more for us. It says this, it says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And then down in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We live in a world with thorns and thistles. We live in a world that is groaning under the pains of childbirth until now. We should not be surprised as followers of Christ that there are big problems that we face. We should not be surprised that we live in a world that has murder and adultery and, and big epic things like wars and rumors of wars and challenges. Friends, the Bible lets us know in the very early on in the very first chapters that there's a cause to these things and that cause is rebellion against God that has consequences and impact that have carried on even till today. We live in a world that quakes. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but have you ever wondered, why is the world not any worse? I mean, if, if sin has impacted the world to the degree that it has impacted the world, why is the world not worse? I mean, though there are certainly bad things in this world, but there's also good things in this world. I mean, yes, there are, are destructive tornadoes, but there's also beautiful sunsets. You know, yes, there, there are people who hurt us, but there's also puppy dogs, right? The world is not as bad as it could be. Why? Well, I think the reason why the world is not as bad as it could be is because God has given, through His common grace to all of us, believers and unbelievers alike, He's given various restraints to sin. We're not going to have time to look up all these verses, but I'll I'll reference where these ideas come from, and you can look them up later. There are are at least four restraints that God has given that are expressions of His common grace to us, restraining sin. The first of those restraints is the restraint of conscience. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 describes how God has written His law on our hearts. Deep inside of humanity, there is a sense of right and wrong. This is why certainly there are perversions within different religions, but there is also there are certain things that are genuinely rejected by most people of reasonable mind around the world. Most people believe that murder is wrong. Most people believe that. Those kinds of things. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the fact that God wrote his law on our hearts. On the inside, there is a conscience that gets seared. Why do you not do some of the things that you think you might want to do? Why do you not sin? Well, at times it's because your conscience is tripped. Even before you came into a relationship with Christ, or if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you still don't do some things because your conscience tells you no. 
There's a little voice on the inside. That's an expression of God's common grace. He has given to us a conscience. It's part of the reason why the world is not as bad as it could be. A second restraint that God has given to sin is the restraint of family. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, that's in the midst of the Ten Commandments where God tells us to honor our fathers and mothers that we would live long upon the earth. God has instituted this this thing called a family to help people understand right from wrong. Parents, this is part of our job, right? To raise children that understand the difference between right and wrong. And whether you know Christ or you don't know Christ, I've yet to meet the parent that hopes their children are, are raised to be miserable people, to be awful influences on society. For the most part, people want their children to to understand how to live within society. It's part of God's common grace. He's instituted the family to to help children understand right from wrong. Certainly there are are perversions to that. You can think of abusive homes or, or absent homes, but in general, God has provided a common grace of the family to help guide people in an understanding of right and wrong. A third expression of a restraint that God has provided is is not just a conscience on the inside or a family on the outside, but it's the church. Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16. He describes who his followers will become, will become a light to the world, salt to to influence the culture around us. The church is, is given as a restraint to sin to help people to understand right from wrong. That's why we teach God's Word. That's why we gather in Bible studies and homes and look into God's Word. It's to, to spread the will of God, not just here, but it's why people go all over the world. We want people to understand the truth so that ultimately they could see their sin, they could repent, and they could find salvation in Christ. But part of the reason why the world is not as bad as it could be is because God has always had a collection of followers who have pointed people back to his way. Israel in the Old Testament, but in this era, it is the church. Those are three restraints to sin in the world, but there's a fourth. And that fourth restraint to sin in the world is the restraint of government. We saw this last week as Bruce walked us through Romans 13, 1 through 7. The the role of government is to reward what is good and to punish evil. There certainly are times people don't sin because of a conviction of of their conscience, or they don't sin because their mama or daddy, daddy told them not to, or they don't sin because they've learned something in a church. But there are other times that people don't sin because they are fearful of the government that bears a sword. They don't want to go to prison, therefore they, they don't break the law. That, friends, is an expression of God's common grace. He's given these restraints into the world. That's part of the reason why the world is not as bad as it, as it could be. Now, Bruce began us in a conversation last week of talking about this idea of government, but I think it's important for us to begin with this overview because we can see that government is an, is an instrument of God for our good when we understand it this way. And because of that, it's appropriate when our ground begins to shake to seek shelter under the frame of government. It's the second thing that we see here. God provides grace through the frame of government. You know, in in Romans 13, verse 4, 
Paul writes and says, for he, talking about the government here, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. See, government exists to honor what is good and to punish wrongdoers. And in those ways, God has given government as his servant in this world. You know, it's interesting when you look at at that word, it says, for he, the government, is God's servant for your good. Another translation of that would be, he is God's minister in the world. The next time you you see a police officer around town, just just call them a minister. When you see our police officer out in the gathering hall, say, hey, you're, you're a wonderful minister to God for us. You're a servant of God for us. They might not understand, but you can point them back to Romans 13, 4 and see the anchor for that. There is, there is this sense that God has provided service to us through government. And this is true of our police officers and our fire department. It's also true of our, of our governing authorities. God is, has blessed um, us with leaders who provide for us in so many ways. Some of them are members of our congregation, and we're thankful for them. You think of the ways that God has provided for us through government. It provides a, a currency so that, we, that is regulated so that we're able to, to buy and sell goods. A language that is standardized so that we can communicate with one another. School systems and, and, and water that, is, that we can drink. And all of these things, roads that we can drive, at least most of the time in our city, right? Um, there there are, are things that God provides for us through the common grace of government. We should be thankful for those things and recognize them for what they are. They are expressions of the common grace of God. Now, here's what happens for us as believers. Many, sometimes what happens in our hearts is we go, well, that's okay. I understand that general principle, but I only really ever want to honor a government that I like. If I like the government, then I'll honor them. If I don't like them, then I won't. And usually we will pick up on something within that government that they have done that makes it okay for us to hate them. This is what happens for us. Um, There might be a number of things that God is providing His common grace to us through them, but we'll latch on to the one or two things that we don't like. Um, This is just the way that we're we're put together as people. But for that idea, let me just just offer this idea. You know, and last week when Bruce spoke, he talked in Romans 13, 6 and 7, how we're called to pay our taxes. Jesus Himself made a statement, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. Jesus himself talked about paying taxes. Now, sometimes we want to think, yeah, but, but what if some of that tax money is used for things that we don't like? Should we not be justified in not paying it if that's the case? Well, think about this. The taxes that Jesus would have paid, what would they have funded? Eventually, some of the taxes he paid would have funded the Roman soldiers who nailed his hands and feet to a cross. Peter, who later would write about honoring the emperor, we'll see that in just a moment in 1 Peter chapter 2, would have certainly supported paying taxes as part of that, as submitting to the governing authorities. And yet, what, where did some of the tax money go? To construct a coliseum, to handle its upkeep so that Christians might be killed on its floor. Friends, we're not unique in our time in history. 
there are certainly deviations from God's plan that have been done in the name of government. But as Christians, as a general rule, we're called to recognize the government that God has placed over us as his servant. And as a matter of fact, we're called to respond in specific ways to that government. One of the ways that we're called to respond is we're called to respond by being a model citizen. First uh, Peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 16 uh, describe this. Bruce mentioned these verses for us last week, but he says this. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The call here is for us to be model citizens. The call here is for us to be better citizens as Christians than governments are as secular governments. The standard is higher. God has sent His Spirit to reside within our hearts so that we might respond to a higher standard even than governments who are not embodied by the Spirit of God are, are called to live out. That means whether we like what they're doing or not, whether our candidate is in the White House or not, we are called to honor. We're called to be model citizens. What does that look like for us? It certainly means obeying the law. Bruce talked about that last week, paying taxes. He talked about that last week. But also it, it involves um, you know, us voting, for instance, as we are living out our lives in this imperfect world, quaking around us, but we're taking some shelter beneath this. Now, who should you vote for? We'll turn to... No, I'm not going to tell you. Um, but I want you to prayerfully consider your vote because we are called to live in this society, imperfect as it is. It's always been imperfect. And we're called to live as citizens following Christ in the midst of it. The first thing that we are called to do is we are called to live as model citizens. The second thing we're called to do is we're called to speak with honor. Look at what it says in verse 17 of 1 Peter 2. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I think it's fascinating that he says here, honor the emperor. He doesn't just say honor the government. He says, honor the emperor. He mentions a specific human leader. And I think that's important because it's really easy for us to isolate our criticism on a person. We can wave the flag and denigrate the president, can't we? It's easy for us to do that. But as Christians, we're called to even honor the emperor. At the time, the emperor was Nero, a bad man. But Peter wanted followers of Christ to honor him, speaking of, of, of how they spoke of him. Now, we'll talk in a minute about some other ways that we respond that fit within honor but still are not, you know, show some level of disagreement. We'll talk about that in a moment. But think for a moment that we're called to honor the emperor. We're called to honor the president. We're called to honor our governor. We're called to honor our mayor. We're called to honor our police force. Think about that. That's the challenge that, that God has given to us. The Spirit of God resides within us. We're called to a higher standard. We're to speak with honor of them. Think about that before you post your next Facebook post or tweet your next tweet. The, the medium of social media allows us 
the feeling of anonymity that allows our rhetoric to amp up three notches too high. We're to be people that speak with honor, people who tweet with honor, people who Facebook post with honor. Third way that we are to respond, given the fact that God has given government as a frame of grace for us, is we are to pray for our government officials. This is highlighted in Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first couple of verses. This is what it says. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We're to pray for them. If government is an instrument of good for us, then it's good for us when government does well. We're to pray for our government. Think of the responsibility that they have. Pray for them. They make consequential decisions that impact our lives. Pray that they would make wise decisions, that it the conditions on the earth would be good. And, and not just good for our prosperity, though certainly for our prosperity, but, but also for the prosperity of the gospel. Verses 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy 2 go on. It says, This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We want the conditions in the country. We want to pray for our leaders because we want the gospel to go out. We want people to know Christ. The responses that we have as a follower of Christ to government are to be a model citizen, to honor the government officials, and to pray for them. That's what we are are, are called to do. But do we ever break from that norm? Do we ever break from that norm? Well, I think the answer to that is yes, in a very few occasions. See, sometimes the quake breaks the frame. You know, my wife taking refuge under the doorframe in our house makes sense unless that doorframe falls apart. If the doorframe breaks apart, then it's no longer safe to find refuge underneath it. And you need to find safer ground. And in the same way, as followers of Christ, we are to, to... Submit to the government that is over us unless that government is going to require us to disobey God. Because ultimately, we obey God rather than men. Bruce highlighted this last week when he mentioned two exceptions to the norm of us submitting to government. The first exception that he he mentioned was when government requires us to contradict a direct command of God. When government requires us to contradict a direct command of God, then we should obey God rather than men. Now, what does that look like? Well, in the book of Acts, we see an example of just such an occasion in Acts chapter 4 and 5. Now, what happens in Acts 4 and 5 is Jesus has come, he's died on the cross for our sins, he's resurrected from the grave, and he commissions his followers to go and to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And guess what? They took him seriously, and they were doing that. But the Jewish officials who were presiding over Jerusalem at that time were the same ones who had killed Jesus, and they were not happy that the movement of Christ had not stopped. 
And so they began to round up the followers of Christ and beat them and flog them and try to imprison them and tell them to knock it off, to stop proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So the disciples found themselves in this spot between what God had commanded and what the government forbid. This is how they responded in verses 19 and 20 of Acts 4. Peter and John answered the Jewish leaders and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then over in chapter 5 and verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. They said, Hey, look, we understand that you are telling us not to preach the gospel, but we have our orders from a higher power. We have our orders from on high that we are to take this gospel to the ends of the earth, and we must obey God rather than men. When the government requires that we not do something that Christ commanded, we must break that law and follow God instead. Another example of this happens in the book of Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not going to turn there, but just for you to remember that story where they were told to bow down and to worship a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, but they didn't do it because they were going to obey God rather than men. Later on in Daniel 6, Daniel in the lion's den, it was the same thing. They were told not to pray to anybody else, but Daniel bows and prays to God, and he suffers consequences that God protects him through in those instances, but they are examples of disobeying the government on that particular issue, not wholesale disobedience. They were still good citizens, but they were not doing this one thing that violated God's law, and we would be the same way. Right now in Russia, there's a law that has been passed making it illegal to evangelize outside of church buildings government-issued church buildings. It's illegal to do that. It was passed back in July. It wasn't directed specifically at Christians, but to all religions. But the implications are clear. Stop evangelizing. If the United States ever passed a law that said, you are not to evangelize, that would be a law that I would break and I would encourage you to break as well. Because we have orders from on high to obey God rather than men and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But that's a fairly narrow exception. Second kind of, a, of, of an exception would be this. When the government mandates that we violate the clear moral law of God, then we must obey God rather than men. This is a similar kind of an example, but it talks about when a slightly different kind of a thing. We, we think about the example of the Hebrew midwives back in Exodus chapter 1. See, the kings of Egypt made a proclamation that the Hebrew baby boys would be killed. Remember Moses being put in the basket? There was this command that was given to kill the Hebrew baby boys, but the Hebrew midwives disobeyed that rule. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 15 of Exodus, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, and they let the male children live. And they should have done that. A similar example is found in 1 Kings chapter 18, where Jezebel commands for the uh, prophets to be cut off and to be killed, and yet 
um, Obadiah gathers them and hides them in caves. It was right for him to do that. He was obeying God rather than men. You think of examples in modern history. Was it right for families in Europe to hide Jews during the time of the Holocaust? Absolutely it was. I don't care what the law of the land was. That law was a perversion, an abomination to God. It was appropriate to hide them and to break that law because they were obeying God rather than men. And if that situation ever developed in the United States, we would be called to do the same, that we would obey God rather than men. See, there are a couple of times when we would need to remember to obey God rather than men. But for the most part, those situations are fairly extreme and non-existent for us, but certainly realities around the world. Now, I want to just quickly ask two questions that we don't have a lot of time to develop, but I just want to mention them for, the, for us. One question that you might have as you, as you think about this concept is, can I stand up for my rights? Can I stand up for my rights? I mean, if my rights are violated by the government, Is it okay for me to stand up for my rights? If I have a constitutional right, can I exercise it? The answer to that is yes. The Apostle Paul gives us an example of that in Acts chapter 22, verses 25 through 28, where Paul uses his rights as a Roman citizen to his to, the, to their full ability. We, we have the right. If we are ever arrested for the, uh, an expression of freedom of religion that we have, it is okay to pursue our rights through legal channels. Paul did that, and we can do that as well. Second thing that we might want be asking or thinking about is this. Can I point out immoral activity inside of the government or by government officials? Is it okay to do that? Well, I would say yes, it's okay for us to do that. And, and I, we find our, our anchor to this in Luke chapter 3, 18 to 20, where John the Baptist is uh, criticizing Herod for his immoral activity. Now, John will pay dearly for that statement, but he called sin, sin. And as followers of Christ, we don't have our government define right and wrong for us. Right and wrong is defined for us by God. And, and sin, inside and outside the church, it is okay for us to call sin. But we do so as it relates to our government officials and with everyone with honor as we do it. A couple of questions that I think it's important for us to mention. Now, fourth thing and last thing I want us to see is something we all need to remember. We need to remember that our Savior is not elected. We need to remember that our Savior is not elected. You know, friends, it is easy for us in an election year to begin to get despondent because our way doesn't seem to be happening. And that happens for people on both sides of the aisle. John chapter 18, verse 36 reminds us that Jesus is primarily building something that is outside of human government. Jesus answered in 1836 and says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Well, where is his kingdom? Jesus said to to Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 where his kingdom was. He says, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, the rock of his confession of faith in Christ, that 
confession, on that rock, he will build his church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building a kingdom, and that kingdom is not the United States of America. And you know what? Jesus' kingdom can be built no matter who is in power. Republican, Democrat, Independent, it doesn't matter. The kingdom of God can go. And sometimes we are poor judges at the best conditions for church growth. You know, if you were to think about the history of the world, there are several examples that indicate how the church has grown in oppression instead of freedom. Think of a large Middle Eastern country that for over 1,900 years was in an environment that had varying degrees of religious tolerance for other religions, including Christianity. At the end of that era, in the late 1970s, there were 500 known Christians in that country. In 1979, a revolution takes place, and a very oppressive force comes in, trying to stamp out all expressions of Christianity. And in the last 36 years, you know how many Christians have have been found in that country? Conservative estimates place it around a million people, a million Christians 1,900 years, 500, 35 years, a million. Friends, the church is built oftentimes in environments that we don't recognize. Think about China, 100 million Christians in China under communist rule. How does this happen? It happens because Jesus is building his church. If he can build a church in the Middle East, if he can build a church in China, he can certainly build a church regardless of who's in the White House. We don't have to worry that our salvation is hinging on an election. Our salvation is found in a Savior who reigns on high. So to Him, let's pray. Father, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to be together and to worship. Thank you for your truth and your word. And we pray, Father, that you would guide us and help us to be people who find our hope and our fortress in you. And Father, that we would, we would speak with honor of our government, your common grace to us. We would be model citizens inside of a society as an expression of our trust in you. And Father, that, that you would allow us to see your kingdom built in the hearts and lives of people as they place their faith and their trust in Jesus. And Father, we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.